0: Hello and welcome to the Tuba People TV podcast. On this episode, we have Megan Reed, a Phoenix area tubist, who took lessons with Jacobs in the 90s to help with musicality. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Tuba People TV, where we talk about all things Arnold Jacobs all of the time. We're here in the studio, um, Arizona State University Tuba and euphonium Professor Deanna Swoboda. Thank you, Deanna, for letting us use your studio here in uh, Tempe, Arizona, with Megan Reed. Hi Megan. Hi, it's
1: good to be here. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for uh, for joining us and uh, uh, coming to contribute to this project. Uh, Megan and I had an opportunity to work together many years ago in the late 90s at the Brevard Music Center. Mm-hmm. Megan studied with uh, uh, Fritz Kenzik at Michigan and uh, Toby Hanks at Yale and you had some studies with Mr. Jacobs. I did. Um, I'm wondering if you can recall uh, your first uh, set of, what, what, what drew you to Chicago and your those, those first couple of lessons?
1: Um, I had been studying with Toby um, at Yale and finished up my master's and he had suggested that I take some lessons with Jake to fix some some issues with my playing, sure. issues with song and wind and who else do you go to but Jacobs. Um, so after I graduated from Yale, I moved that summer Chicago and started taking lessons, um, and it was fabulous. I, mean, I I started as soon as I could and took lessons as often, often as I could until he passed away.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. And you remember, uh, just looking back on those first couple of lessons, I'm sure it was it must been very exciting because um, you've been studying with. Uh, Fritz and, and Toby and uh, a little bit with Dave Federley also. Mm-hmm. So three very large Jacobs students. Then to go right. to meet the man.
1: Yeah, it was definitely the first time very intimidating. I can remember, mostly what I remember, is parking down underneath the big building and coming up into this big old grand building, with that elevator that had a, a man that pushed the buttons for you. Yeah. Um, going up with all of my instruments. Um, and waiting outside the door, hearing the sounds through the door, also. Something I remember a lot, and the first lesson just... That first glimpse of him, very exciting, mm-hmm. to see this legend in person. Because um, I'd heard about him for years and years and years, since I started studying at Michigan. Yeah,
0: that's great. Yeah. Do you remember um, uh, maybe what he might have addressed in that initial lesson or two? What, what he focused on with you?
1: Um, A lot about song and wind, Um, Jacob spent a lot of time getting me to hear louder the sounds in my head, the song, so that I could put it into the tuba more efficiently, um, so that I was really getting out what was in my head and not relying on the muscle tissue to do any of the work, which was the main issue I had gone to him for. because I'd always been able to buzz easily on my mouthpiece and just sing on pitch and do all those things. But when I picked up my tuba, something would happen. Mm-hmm. There'd be some kind of disconnect, and I wouldn't be able to get that same song to come out the way I wanted it to. So uh, he picked up on that immediately in the first 30 seconds or so I played for him. And we spent the next year and a half, two years, however mm-hmm. long it was, working on that.
0: And you saw him uh, quite frequently, actually, for not being in school. You saw him almost as often as, as if you were enrolled.
1: I did. that. Um, I, I thought about it like I was in school. This was part of my job, was to try to get to those lessons. Um, that was why I was there. I had moved specifically to study with him. Um, so I got in just as often as I could. Um, it was really expensive <laughs> for me at the time, um, and my parents did help out some, but all of that gig money and teaching money, all of it went towards lessons with yeah. Jacobs. So usually every other week, sometimes every week, rarely did I go a full month without getting a lesson. Um, so I feel like I really got a good sense in that. It wasn't a huge amount of time that I got with him, but I got,
0: you got a, lot of information. a lot
1: of, yes.
0: With the, uh, the whole scene a lot more about the in the head, do you, do you recall what he might have said, why that was important? I mean, Think
1: um he thought I was just relying too much on the musculature mm-hmm. to produce the sound. That I had developed very bad habits of trying to control this because I would get nervous or anxious. I would see like a high note coming, and I would clamp up and I would turn everything off and just try to, you know, pinch that note out somehow and control the air. Yeah. Um, he wanted to get rid of all of that. So instead, he would talk about, instead of um, changing it, you need to replace it with something new. Um, he, he often talked, to you about a, a grass path, that the grass was high. And as you walked across it one time, the blades of grass would come down, and they'd start to pop back up. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to walk again and again and again and again, creating your new habit. Um, so I think that's what he was doing with me trying slowly, every time I went to see him, replacing my desire to use my muscles in my face and everything else to reach the notes I wanted with the sound in my head that he knew was there because mm-hmm. he could hear it come out sometimes. Um, trying to get that in there all the time.
0: Yeah, if you can do it once, I remember him telling me in lessons, if you can do it once, you can do it all the time. The structure in place, you just have to demand it of yourself or put yourself in that position where right it's gonna it's gonna work like what you're describing because you you mentioned off camera that you that you would be you, you were demonstrating to him in your lessons your ability to sing and uh, that sort of thing and so that was a, mm-hmm. clearly he knew that you yes. had a good inner voice right so just getting it right and, uh, and right you, and
1: sometimes things would come out beautifully yeah. and at other times it would just be a mess. And I can remember him saying, Why would you ever want to sound like that? You know, when you can always sound like this. Mm-hmm. And telling me when I practiced to spend an hour, you don't need to practice for 10 hours. Spend a good hour doing this, really hearing, and don't make sure everything that comes out is the way you want it to come out. And mm-hmm. if it's not, go back and do it again until it's the way you want it, even if it's two notes. Work on those two notes.
0: Yeah. Yes. Two notes. One note. Right. Make it the way you want it.
1: And he would often say to not not compare myself to myself, don't compare myself to my peers. Compare myself with Picorni. Compare myself with those great artists. That is who I'm competing against. Mm-hmm. That is what I wanted to sound like. And that can be achieved if you have it in your head. You know, and he, he's like this this sound you made right here. That is comparable, you know. You just have to do that on more than the two notes, but we've got the two notes. Yes. You just need to make it all the time.
0: So substituting excellence in your mind for what might have been less than excellent. Yes. In your thoughts. Yes, so I think thoughts my thoughts just turned off completely, truthfully,
1: and I still struggle with it, but I, I you know, it's gotten better.
0: Mhm. Megan, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, you singing in your lessons with Jacobs. Can you describe uh, singing, playing mouthpiece, playing the rim? What did he have you doing with those?
1: Um, usually, he would start out asking me to play something that I prepared for him, or often things I had not prepared for him. He would pick something random, even though he had assigned something else, and then. I'd start, I'd play four or five notes, and he'd stop me and ask me to either sing it or get out my mouthpiece or the rim and then buzz whatever it was I was working on. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes he'd have me buzz it up an octave, buzz it down an octave, buzz it backwards. (laughs) I mean, just lots and lots and lots of buzzing. Um, We would switch between the mouthpiece and the ring as well. Sometimes mouthpiece, sometimes ring. The ring, um, I think maybe because you can feel the vibration so much more. Mm -hmm. Um, and he would want he would want me to feel that. With me, he worked a lot on getting more vibration. There was a lot of work on breath as well, but he really wanted me to feel that vibration and would have me touch my lip in the area I thought was vibrating um, and then see if I could imagine when I was playing the tuba that that area was really vibrating, even though when you're on the tuba, you really can't feel it the mm-hmm. same way. Yeah, right. Um, And that tended to work very well for me. Uh, The the sound difference between before I felt my lip and imagined it to after is pretty phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Marked difference. Um, And the singing as well, I mean, just putting that, the good sound back into my head, I think it's that replacement of whatever gobbledygook was going on with what's supposed to be going on, which is only the song. Um, and when you buzz on the mouthpiece, it's very, very difficult to have anything but that going on. Mm-hmm. You will nothing will come out at all. Um, right. So it's a very,
0: very clean way. To... Did he did he uh, ever talk about the why it's good about you know why he promoted mouthpiece playing or you remember if he discussed that?
1: I don't think he did. I um I had always had teachers that promoted mouthpiece buzzing I know that it had been in some circles controversial right. but I had never had a teacher that didn't have me do that um, so it never surprised me and it never I think from the first lesson he had me buzzing and maybe because he knew I had studied with with Toby and with Fritz um, not something he talked much about he just had me do it
0: didn't have to explain it no yeah. Um seems like, you know, with his, his having you do all that, that playing of the mouthpiece and the rim and the singing, just getting you to it was just getting you to really focus in on the song so much. Mm-hmm. And then to try to keep that same focus once you have the tuba. Right. In your hands because when you have the tuba, when you pick up the tuba, then you have all these neural pathways that light up that represent your tuba habits.
1: Yes. Yes, he was trying to get rid of all of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and listening back to some of this, these tapes, I can hear, after I would buzz on the mouthpiece or whatever he had me doing, singing or buzzing, and then go back, I would have four or five notes of just perfect, beautiful sound. I mean, everything just right. And then it would start to fizzle as the mental images got more cloudy. Mm -hmm. Then he'd have me stop again. Um, but... Yeah, it's that song, the song in your head, always, 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 and the great, great sound. He would always ask me, you know, is your imagination good today? Is your imagination good? Really? And have me, yeah, wow. imagining that. Um,
0: great.
1: And he talked a lot about the audience. Mm-hmm. He said that you should always be playing for the audience. Um, not for yourself, never listening to what's coming out. You might hear it, you're gonna hear it a little bit, but mostly you're playing for that person out there. Um, I don't know, And he would talk about sitting in the studios at Curtis, and all these famous people walking down the halls. Mm -hmm. And so he said he used to practice with an amazing sound all the time, because he didn't want anyone to think he wasn't a great tuba player. So he played all his easiest stuff, always sounding perfect, and then saved the other things for later when he was pretty sure no one was really listening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that he, at least, he t- what he imparted to me was part of his success was all his time spent playing perfectly with the exact sound he wanted, the exact tone, the exact dynamic, and all that in the head instead of messing around and working things out, um, which he did. But at home, yes.
0: Yeah, in, the, in the safe confines of yes. his basement. So he was practicing and performing rather than practicing, practicing.
1: Yes. And that that was a lot of what he did with me. Because I not like I was a beginning tuba student. I could play the tuba. Yeah. I didn't need all of that technical work. And I needed to replace what was in my head all the time with something good. So he worked on me as a performer.
0: Do you, do you recall what the kind of literature he had you working on? Um,
1: we did a lot of etudes. Um, the Blue
0: Book? Blue Book. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: a lot of Blue Book. We did some Coprash. Um,
0: <sighs> Arbenz. Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of just studies, but done.
0: With great style.
1: Yes, with great style. Everything with great style all the time.
0: Yeah, a lot of showmanship and showbiz.
1: And one of the concepts... Um, that I think has been very different from other people I've studied with with phrasing with him he wanted you to pay attention to every single note not to the phrase as a whole yeah said so you're building the phrase by playing each note perfectly instead of thinking about from here to here right and it's it's something I still struggle with it's a hard concept yeah building the phrase note by note
0: yeah the microphrasing yeah, he got that from Tabby Toe at Curtis. I remember that as well. Uh-huh. And it was. It was difficult to uh, uh, grasp mm-hmm. sometimes. But you, you had some of that. Great. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, so uh, excerpts or solo literature, or
1: did you yes, cover any of that? all of that. Okay. Um, I, I was studying with him during a time where I was taking a lot of auditions. So I would bring in stuff. Um, sometimes he wanted to work on it. Sometimes he didn't. Depending on what kind of mood he was in. and I don't know. I mean, I, I always felt like I'd go in and I'd have prepared for my lesson and brought in five things he asked me to, to do. And he'd say, what else do you have? I'm like, Well, <laughs> and I'd rummage through my books. Like, I guess I could play this for you. The excerpts. He would work on them. But usually we ended up working on two or three notes instead of working on the excerpt, which is great. I mean, I'd have a really great two or three notes exactly. to apply to the rest of it. Um,
0: Do you remember what he said about those two or three notes, that they got to be really good? Did he, did he have anything to...
1: Well he would just say, and he's like, that is how you would an audition, you know. Um, he would want all of it to sound like those two or three notes, and he would, not, he would tell, you know, tell me I could not accept anything less, mm-hmm. always strive for the very best possible sound and articulation that I could possibly get, that I was not doing kind of what I thought was okay. I had to sound like Bacorni mm-hmm. and I could do that if I really got in my head and did it. Yeah. So every, you know, he would stop me every note because <laughs> that one wasn't quite good enough. <laughs>
0: And was that frustrating
1: for you? You know, I don't remember it being frustrating at all. Yeah. I recently have listened back to some of these lesson tapes, and I feel frustrated listening to it now. But at the time, not at all.
0: That's great. Megan, at the at the outset of our, our time together, we were talking about the um, the song and the wind. We talked a lot about the song. What did he What did he talk about in terms of wind with you?
1: He definitely worked with me. Um, with all of the big words talking about the diaphragm and the the lungs and expansion, um, but what stuck with me was when he told me he was having me do some breathing exercises one day and and said that the sound was wrong when I took a breath in, that my sound going out was correct, but when I took a breath in, it should sound the same as it did when it went out. And the words he used were that. Um, a given velocity of air through a given size portal will make a given sound. And that sound is a who sound. <sighs> and when you make that sound, you can't help but completely filling up. Um, and it's something I still teach to my students. It seems to work magically for taking a big breath. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to think about any of the mechanics. Um, and he would still, I mean, harp on me with things, but just. That simplicity with the air. Make that sound, you will get a good breath, and then you don't have to worry about breathing. You aren't supposed to be thinking about the breathing at all. You're just supposed to be hearing the song and blowing.
0: Yeah. Go for that sound of the breath. Mm -hmm. And you don't have the sound will control, get the sound and you'll control the body. Yes. Yeah.
1: If you try, you know, breathe to expand, don't expand to breathe. Right. It's the same idea.
0: Did he ever talk to you about uh, being weak? Weakness is your friend or strength is your enemy or anything like
1: that? I'm sure I heard that. I mean, it's, I think, one of the things Jacobs
0: said, yeah. <laughs> the
1: weakness is your friend. I can't remember him specifically saying that to me. Um, there was a lot of you're, you're a small person, you can't compete. Physically, with somebody who's six feet tall, you're never going to have the capacity. The capacity. Yeah. But he would tell me repeatedly it did not matter, that he himself did not have that capacity. Right. And especially after he'd gotten sick. But mm-hmm. he said it really didn't matter that if I could learn to always take my full breath, that would probably be the same as somebody else taking their regular breath they took that wasn't as good. Mm-hmm. So that I should just make sure I'm always filling up, and that my size wouldn't matter.
0: Right. What was he like uh, for you? You know, that last year or two of your uh, years of his life. Um, what was the What was the vibe as you would enter the studio?
1: Um, he was always joyful, smiling, drinking his coffee. He had a lot of coffee.
0: Always cream, cream and sugar.
1: <laughs> yes. 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 Um. Just very alive. I mean, thinking back, those of us who were studying with him when he passed were shocked that it happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, in it, he was using a walker. He needed help getting around, but he was vibrant.
0: Yeah, the mind was there.
1: Yes, he he remembered my lesson to lesson exactly what I had done the lesson before. There was no mental degradation at all. And so warm. I mean, I think for me, and I don't know how he was with anybody else, Mm -hmm. but he knew that I needed a teacher that was going to believe in me, that was going to support me, and he was almost like a grandfather to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. he just, I felt so loved and so supported in my lessons. Mm -hmm. Um, He was my greatest supporter, my greatest cheerleader, Mm -hmm. Um, and having that from someone who was. An icon, you know, was unbelievable.
0: Yeah, a, lot that, of, a great confidence builder.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, it's just devastating to have him pass. At the time, I, I remember going to church maybe the Sunday after, and just crying. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just such a loss. Um, and I think because of that. Not you know the lessons were amazing and the tuba playing, but just that belief in me as a person and what I could do. Yeah. The way a parent does.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he he gave so many people that side of him, uh, especially people who saw him quite a quite a bit. My last lesson was about eight weeks before he passed away, so August. I think it was August fifteenth mm-hmm. of ninety eight, and um, yeah, you know the Walker and. Certainly getting weaker and uh, physically more frail, but right there. Yeah. Just right there. The ears were still working.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was surprising to me. I mean, there was no problem with his ears. He couldn't see very well the music. Yeah. Um, but he could hear everything. Yeah. Um, and he could still play. He would play often in my lessons. He would take my horn.
0: Mm-hmm. He would demonstrate.
1: Yes. And you can, I mean, you could hear the Jake sound. He yeah. wasn't the most beautiful anymore. There were, because he didn't play very often, but you could tell it was Jake playing. Yeah. The characteristic.
0: Yeah. Have you been back to the Fine Arts Building since he passed away? I have not, no. Yeah. That's, uh, it's still there. Uh, <laughs> his, his name is still on that door. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, John Hagstrom of uh, the Chicago Symphony trumpet section has been leasing it, oh,
1: okay.
0: and he has his teachers in there, but he has a nice, uh, there's a nice remembrance of Mr. Jacobs mm-hmm. uh, on the door. It's so, great. Well, Megan, I'm so thankful again for, for you taking the time away from, from uh, your family and uh, uh, coming down to see Papples and I uh, <laughs> to talk about Mr. Jacobs.
1: Well, thank you, this has been great.
0: Yeah, uh, you, you had a I think you had a really great opportunity with him that last year and a half or so of his of his life, and uh, just to get his wisdom and ideas during the last what turned out to be his last couple of years. I feel very
1: lucky to have had the opportunity, and I mean, there's so many people my age who was studying at the time who were there
0: mm-hmm. who
1: didn't go take lessons for one reason or the other. Yeah, right. And I just feel so blessed to have done it. Um, when I was able, Yeah. if I had waited another year.
0: Quite correct. And now you're passing on his legacy to your own students, mm-hmm. which is uh, the best tribute Absolutely. that we have. Yes. For Here is, um, we'd like to give you this uh, uh, token of our appreciation, uh, this beautiful, genuine, 2 people TV class for your drinking enjoyment.
1: Wonderful. Thank you very much. It's really
0: good with chocolate milk. <laughs> Perfect. It's great to see you, Megan. Nice to see you, too. Yep. And now back to you. Uh, uh.